Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. This is the Word of God. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Thus says the Lord. Friends, today we are still continuing in our series through the book of Romans. After we're done with chapter 8, we're going to take a break, and we're going to do a four-week sermon series on marriage and singleness, uh, and then come back to chapter 9 after that. But for now, as we're finishing off chapter 8, what we see here in our passage today is that Paul continues to bombard us with a lot of theology, right, which is what he's been doing throughout the book. But you've got to remember here that Paul's motivation in teaching us all these doctrinal truths and all this theology is not just merely for the purpose of information. He does all of this for the purpose of encouragement. If you remember the context of this, when this letter was written, Paul was writing it to persecuted Christians in Rome at the time that was being uh, beat down by the Roman authorities, by Emperor Claudius. And Paul here meant to teach them all these doctrines and all this theology to keep them going in the faith, to help them push through and stay faithful to Christ and to the Lord, even in these hard times. And when you're feeling hopeless, you know, even when you're not able to hear or see anything good around you, Paul is saying here to them, keep going. Keep going, because God's doing amazing things in your life, even though you may not be able to immediately hear it or see it. That's what this passage is about. Okay, it's about Paul lifting up the hearts of these defeated, beat-down Christians by revealing to them God's work that's happening in the dark, even if they can't immediately hear it or, or see it. And those of you, you know, you may be in the spot right now. You may be holding on for dear life. You're on the ropes, and you really need to hear what Paul is telling you here. And I, and I hope this encourages you to, to keep going and stay faithful um, to Christ. And for the rest of you, you may not be at this particular uh, moment in your life, you know, at the end of the rope or, or suffering in that way, but I still invite you to absorb and to lean in to the truths that Paul is telling us here in God's Word today, because as you know, life does have a way in bringing you to the ropes, okay, sooner or later, and it's truths like these that'll give you that ounce of hope that you'll need to get through the dark, all right? So let's, uh, let, let's get to it. Christian, when everything in and around you seem hopeless, be encouraged by the fact that there's a prayer you can't hear and a synergy you can't see, and there's a glorious beginning you didn't choose. Okay, that's Paul's encouragement for us. When everything seems to be falling apart around you, remember, there's a prayer you can't hear, there's a synergy you can't see, and there's a glorious beginning you didn't choose. Let's start with the first one. There's a prayer you can't hear. Look at verse 26 with me. Let, let's start there at the beginning. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says. Now, let's focus on this word, likewise, okay? 
this word likewise tells us that there's something about this passage that is like the previous passage, right? Okay, so what is the previous passage about? Well, it was about Paul encouraging beat-down Christians who are groaning along with, with all of creation, remember? Paul's encouraging them to keep going, to stay faithful uh, in, in Christ and in their walks in the faith. Why? Because there is a future hope of glory. There is heaven to look forward to, right? That's what's supposed to encourage them to endure current difficulties. Likewise, Paul now says, just as the promise of future glory is meant to help us get through the hard times today, the Holy Spirit, Paul says here in verse 26, likewise is also meant to help us in our weakness. And I hope you see here just how realistic Paul is. See, some of us, I suspect, we have been a bit desensitized to just how bad suffering can be. And we often think just simply promising heaven over and over and over again to somebody, that should do it, right? If they're going through a hard time, all we need to do is just say, look, God's redeemed you. He's going to redeem you in heaven, so don't worry about it. And if we can just convince them of this coming future glory, they should be fine. But many of you, I suspect, know firsthand what it feels like when the promise of heaven just doesn't do it for you anymore. You know, you're just in too deep. See, there's a kind of darkness in life that makes us crave for the light, but every now and then, we fall in so deep and it's so dark to where not only do we not see the light, but in a weird way, we don't even care about it anymore. You know, you've been there? And Paul here is saying to the Christians he's writing to, if you get there, when your own faith seems to be fading, when all you hear inside are cynical thoughts about life, about God, about his promises, and you just don't care anymore. You know, you can't even muster up the energy to pray. If you get there, don't panic, because someone is praying for you, even when you aren't praying for yourself. Who is? We'll look at the rest of verse 26. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit is praying for you. Now, what is this groaning that is too deep for words? Some people say Paul here is talking about speaking in tongues, right? When you're so filled with the Spirit and then you start speaking in tongues in language you can't understand. Or others say it's an audible kind of internal voice that you can hear, you just don't know what it means, right? That's what it means to be too deep for words. But those options seem to be unlikely here for a few reasons. One, the Greek word that's translated to the phrase too deep for words here is alaletois, okay? Which doesn't mean undiscernible. It more means unaudible, okay? So you can't hear it at all. The second, notice, who is the one doing the groaning here? It's not us, but it's the Holy Spirit. And also note, he's not groaning with us, nor is he groaning to us, you see, but he's groaning for us, on our behalf. In other words, we are not necessarily the recipients of these groans, okay? We might not necessarily hear them. But the last reason of why Paul here, I don't think, is talking about audible noises, and I think this is the most um, uh, strongest case here, is remember before this, in the previous passage, Paul already used the word groaning once before. Remember, referring to how nature is groaning as they wait uh, for the redemption of all things, as they would wait for heaven. Now, obviously, Paul there isn't saying that the trees and the riverbanks and the mountains are making audible groaning noises, right? 
No, the groaning there is a silent groaning, an unaudible groaning to our ears. As a commentator describes it, there are inaudible and metaphorical pains and frustrations. So the groaning of the Spirit here is not something we can hear, but someone can, and someone does. Who is that if not us? Well, go to verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Who is he? We'll continue verse 27, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's the one hearing the Spirit's prayers, God the Father. So though mute to our ears, God the Father hears the Spirit's groaning who is praying on your behalf. And look, we've all been there. When life is just so painful, so hopeless, and you've entered into a level of sadness where the adjective sad is not quite the right word to use anymore, and you're too tired to even pray. You do try to even care, much less about God. You don't even care about what you eat or drink next. You're just done with life. And Paul is saying here, if life takes you there, Christian, you may not be able to hear it. But at that moment, the Holy Spirit is praying for you on your behalf to the Father. But what's even more encouraging is at the end of verse 27. Paul says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the image here isn't like, you know, God the Father is this distant figure somewhere, and then God the Spirit is like the nice one, begging God the Father to keep you strong, you know, to not leave you. And the Father is saying, okay, I guess, if, if you're the one asking, I'll, I guess I'll answer your prayers. No. Paul's saying the Spirit is praying on your behalf because that's what the Father wanted him to do in the first place. It is the Father's will. This whole thing was his idea. What a shocking truth this is, and I don't want to sound heretical here, but I think, in a sense, you can say that the triune God is praying for you to himself. See, my prayers for you may or may not be answered, because my prayers for you may or may not be aligned to God's will, but how silly would it be for God to not answer his own prayers for you? That'd be nonsensical. Of course he'll be answered. Now, here's the million-dollar question. What is God's prayer for you, right? When God the Spirit prays for you to God the Father, what does He ask for? It's going to be answered. I mean, you know, you can't get more certain than God answering His own prayers, okay? The question is, what is the prayer? Well, go to verse 29, that we may be conformed to the image of His Son. And here's where we go back to the encouragement part again. When we hear the phrase, to be conformed to the image of His Son, or to the image of Jesus Christ, what we automatically usually think is, is more in terms of character development, right? As in the Holy Spirit is praying so that your character here on earth will be more and more conformed to the character of Jesus while he was on earth. But remember, that's not the theme of this part of the book of Romans. This, this whole time, if you remember, Paul has been talking about future glory, future glory, future heaven. That's the theme of this passage. So the Jesus that Paul is talking about here is not the Jesus on earth. But it's the Jesus who is currently sitting victoriously in glory at the right hand of the Father in heaven. So in other words, the Holy Spirit's prayer to the Father is that one day you'll be resurrected like Christ was and you'll sit with him where he is in heaven at the finish line. That's the Spirit's prayer for you. And look, I don't know where you are right now, you know, what, eight months, nine months into the pandemic, eight months of quarantine, eight months of constant angst, eight months of no school for your kids, eight months of economic uncertainty, eight months of 
your own sin revealing itself in ways that you rarely see before. And some of you might be so tired, and you're done, and you got nothing else to give, nothing else to say to God. If you're there, don't call it quits just yet. Because although you may not be able to hear it, your triune God, who never sleeps nor slumbers, is praying for you that you will reach the finish line safe and sound. And if God's going to answer anyone's prayers, it'd be his own spirit's prayer. So go ahead and put that in the bank and bet your whole life on it that nothing can take you away from your Father that is in heaven, not even the season that you're currently in. Now, in case that wasn't enough to encourage these beat-down Christians about their eternal security and their eternal salvation, Paul continues to tell them something else. Not only is God praying for them in a way that they can't hear, but he's also performing a work for their sake that they may not be able to immediately see, which leads us to our second point, a synergy you can't see. Now, this next verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, is probably one of the most popular and misused verses in the New Testament. Right, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, a lot of people use this verse with the right intention, which is to encourage Christians that are suffering, which is why Paul is using it here. But the way it's done, and I've made this mistake multiple times, the way it's done uh, is, is usually by using this verse to either ignore our pains or oversimplify the solution to our pains. And that's not the right way to use it. Let's, let's talk about that. First, let's see why this passage isn't supposed to be used to ignore pain. Okay, let me read it again. And we know that for all who love God, all things work together for good. Okay, what does all things mean? All things means all things, right? Both good and bad circumstances, you know, as well as happy and sad emotions. That's also in the category of all things. See, most people use this verse like this. Because all things will end up working for good, bad external circumstances shouldn't make you feel sad, right? If something bad happens on the outside, everything's going to work out, so don't feel sad inside. But, but I don't think that's what Paul means here. Uh, he doesn't, I think doing that minimizes what Paul means by all things. All things refer to both external bad circumstances and also internal sad emotions. You know, all things work together for the good. Look, when Jesus came to raise Lazarus up from the dead, he was dealing with a bad external circumstance, was he not? A bad circumstance that he was eventually going to fix. But even then, you know, even though he knew he was going to fix it, he didn't come to the funeral saying, look, everybody, you know, listen up, Mary, Martha, everybody just needs to stop crying because I'm about to raise Lazarus up in like 10 minutes, okay? So no one cry. There's no point in that. Is that what Jesus said when he went to the funeral? No. What did he do? He himself cried. Now, we may be asking the question, why did he cry even though he knew he was going to redeem the situation? Because the fact that something will be fixed in the future doesn't make the current break painless. Just because your arm, uh, your broken arm will eventually get fixed, it doesn't mean that you can't groan when it first breaks. Just because you'll eventually recover from this heartbreak, it doesn't mean you can't groan when your heart initially breaks. All things, you see, external circumstances and internal sadnesses, all things will work together for good. Now, 
The second way of how we often misuse this passage is not only do we use it to ignore our pain, but also we use it to oversimplify the situation. We do that by using this passage in a, if God closes one door, he'll open up another kind of way, right? Like God will replace whatever you lost with something better. So, you know, God closes a door on this job offer, he's going to replace it with another better job offer. Or if God closes the door on this relationship, he's going to replace it with a better relationship. And look, I'm not saying God can't do that, but that's not what this verse is talking about. The phrase work together here in Greek is actually one word, and that's the word synergy, which means synergy. So the idea here isn't so much that if God takes one thing away, he'll definitely give you a better replacement. No, the idea here is more that all the events in your life, all the emotions you experience, everything that's happened, all things, good or bad, will all synergistically work together and accumulate in an end that is your good. And as we've discussed earlier, that good end is to be conformed to the image of the resurrected Christ as he is now at the finish line. So we got to stop using this verse by saying, you know, hey, if you lose something, don't be sad because God's going to replace it. Everything's going to work out for the good. That's not what this verse is about. God doesn't deal with pain by way of ignorance or replacement. That's not how God deals with pain and suffering. And, you know, people who use this verse in this way usually have had the privilege of never having experienced soul-crushing pain. I mean, of course, that narrative would work with smaller problems, right? But some of you have experienced a kind of loss that's soul-crushing. And if someone comes up to you and says, you know, don't be sad. If God closed this door, he's just going to open another one. That'll only make the Christian God seem unreasonably insensitive and the Christian faith unreasonably ignorant. God doesn't deal with suffering through ignorance or replacement because some things just can't be ignored or replaced. And, and please understand, I'm scared that you're hearing something I'm not intending to say here. I'm not saying if you experience something bad, the Spirit is praying for you and He'll use the situation to get you to the finish line. So don't worry about praying, you know, or don't expect any kind of replacement in this lifetime. I'm not saying that. All Paul is saying here is that life has a way to drag you down such despair to where you have nothing left but silence toward God and cynicism toward the concept of hope. Now, for the Roman Christians in that day, Emperor Claudius and the soon-to-be Emperor Nero surely had their way of bringing many of them to such silence and cynicism. And to them, Paul is saying, keep going. Keep going, because even in your silence, there's a prayer God is saying for you. And even in your cynicism, there's a work God is doing for you, even though you can't hear it, even though you can't see it, and that'll bring you victoriously to the end. Now, the question here you might ask is why? Why would God hold on to me that tightly? Why would God stubbornly stick around with someone like me? Why would the Spirit keep interceding for me? Uh, why would God continually and meticulously, sovereignly ordain all things around me for my good? when I'm so fickle, when I'm so weak, when I so easily give him the silent treatment and so easily are suspicious of his motives at the drop of a hat? Well, that takes us to our last point. God's going to stick around till the end because there's a glorious beginning 
that you didn't choose. Now, I find this very interesting, that in order to assure Christians of their end, Paul, in verses 29 to 30, talks about the beginning. Look at verse 29 again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, those he foreknew, he also predestined. You see, these are past occurrences here. Those whom he foreknew and predestined, he will conform to the image of his Son. To, in order to ensure them of the, of the future, Paul goes back to the beginning. And a lot of people have trouble with the phrase predestination here, and I won't spend too much time defending it here because Paul will spend a lot of time defending it in Romans chapter 9. So let's wait till we get there. But here in this passage, Paul throws out this word, not to intellectually defend it just quite yet. He did it to emotionally encourage Christians. Paul's telling them here that God foreknew you. Now, this doesn't mean that God knew what you were going to do, as in like he knew beforehand, okay? Uh, that you will receive Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So because, of, because he knew that, he then predestined you. No, foreknowing here is different than foreseeing. Okay? To know someone carries a more personal and intimate meaning in the Bible. It's to have a personal relationship with them. Like some translations of the Old Testament still say that Abraham knew Sarah, and then Sarah got pregnant. You know, that didn't mean that Abraham just thought about Sarah in her head, and then she got pregnant. That's not what happened. There's a personal relationship. There's an intimacy. There's a knowing there. Likewise, when Paul says here, God foreknew us, he didn't mean God just cognitively knew about us, or what we will do, but that God has decided to know us, to have a personal relationship with us from eternity past. Plus, Paul here didn't say God foreknew about us. That's significant. Paul said God foreknew us, the person. He has a relationship. There's a love relationship. There's an intimacy that God has always had with his people before they even existed. Now, what does this have anything to do with encouraging Christians to get to the end? How does this revealing of truth of the past, encourage Christians of their future. Now, I've shared this story before, but I think it's relevant here. I forgot a lot of things about my seminary years. But there's this one Wednesday chapel sermon that I have not yet forgotten, I don't think I ever will, where one of the professors came up and preached a short sermon, and he quoted an old theologian named Gerhardus Voss. And the professor said this, quoting Voss, the best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. The best proof that God will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. So why will God stick with you to the finish line? Even though you so easily give him the silent treatment, and even though we so easily are tempted to deny him over and over again, because his love for you is not dependent upon your love for him. And his choosing of you is not dependent of you choosing him. The reason why there is no point in time in which God will stop loving you is because there was no point in time in which he began. Look at verse 30. Look at all those action verbs in verse 30. God predestined, called, justified, glorified his people, right? Also known here as the order of salvation. Predestined, called, justified, glorified. Notice, God's the one doing all of this, by the way, and also, it's all in the past tense. From our predestination to our future glorification, 
even something in the future, like our glorification. Paul talks about it in the past tense. It's one huge packet of blessing that God has done to all whom he foreknew. It's done. It's finished. Paul can speak of all of this in the past tense because the whole thing was God's gracious packet of salvation bestowed upon his people before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians 1 says. See, if you choose God, you can always unchoose him. But if he chose you, you see, despite knowing everything about you, if he chose you, what can take you away from him? There's a prayer you can't hear. There's a synergy you can't see. And there's a beginning you didn't choose. And all of that, because all of that, one day you'll get to the end. One day you'll get to the point where you see how all things work together to have brought you there to full conformity and likeness to the image of the resurrected Christ who is in heaven. Except for one difference. There's going to be one stark difference in Jesus' glorified body in heaven compared to ours in heaven. You see, if you read, read the Bible, Jesus' glorified body will still have the scars of the cross on it. You see this in the story of Doubting Thomas, who put his finger in the scars of Jesus' resurrected body. You see this in Revelations chapter 5, I think, that talks about Jesus in heaven as if he was a lamb that has been slain with the scars of the cross still on his body. And when you see that, that's when you see how God actually deals with pain and wounds. See, he doesn't ignore them, nor does he just simply replace them. But what does he do? He utilizes them. He uses them. He flips them around and uses all things, even the cross, for good. The wound and scar-filled glorified body of Christ will remind us of that through eternity. So Christian, if you are currently at the end of your rope, for whatever reason, acknowledge it, that it's painful, and this might bring about wounds that last a long time. But then I pray God will remind you also of this truth in our passage today, that even in those moments, there's a prayer you can't hear, and there's a synergy at work you can't see, and there's a glorious beginning you never chose that will take you all the way to a glorious end that you can't lose. The sinner that by precious faith has felt his sins forgiven is from that moment passed from death and sealed an heir of heaven. Brethren, by this claim abide, this title to your bliss, whatever loss you bear beside, oh, never give up this. A friend, a helper so divine, excites my courage raise. He makes the glorious victory mine, and his shall be the praise. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your sovereign mercy upon us from beginning to end. And that in your condescending, humiliating humiliation in which you came down and, and related yourself to sinners like us, not only in the cross, 
not only in your humanity, not only in your incarnation when you were born, but even the fact that you would even think of foreknowing sinners like us is not something we ever deserved. And we find eternal security knowing that our eternal God has loved us from eternity past and that nothing can take us away from your hand. Help us, Father, make this information not just something that gets stuck in our minds, but as something that comforts our hearts and helps us to get back up and, and push on and keep going as we walk this Christian life in this torturous world. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the intercession of your spirit. And thank you for your sovereign work and mercy in the life of your people, in the life, um, in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.